you have your Bibles, uh, the scripture reading this morning will be in the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. It's verses 17 through 19. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You may be seated. Thank you for the reading today, for the beautiful songs which we have been singing, for your fine participation, for the prayers, for the men who led us in our worship by surrounding this Lord's table today, for your presence today, those who are visiting, we're all very grateful, very happy that you're with us. I count it a great joy and a blessing to be with you to worship and to speak to this fine assembly of people. Uh, about the greatest book in all the world, and that's our Bible. We'll be meeting tonight at 6 o'clock where we're involved in a Sunday night seminar on the sermons of the New Testament. And we'll be looking again at Matthew chapter 6, which is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start, we started that sermon last Sunday night with chapter 5. Tonight we'll look at chapter 6. Lord willing, tomorrow, next Sunday night we'll look at uh, chapter 7. And then that will conclude our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount and our Sunday night seminar on the sermons of the New Testament, though that does by no means exhaust the sermons of the New Testament. There are many others that we could study and analyze, but I've enjoyed our studies, and I hope you'll be with us tonight at at 6 o'clock. When I was a young boy, one of my favorite toys was that kaleidoscope that I got for Christmas where you look through the tube at one end and you turn the tube on the other end, you put it up to the light, and it was just amazing to me all the different colorful configurations that came to play. And I learned very quickly that no matter how often you turn that tube, either to the left or to the right, you could never really get the same configuration again. As I got older, I realized that it was a matter of mirror and and pieces of colored glass, And as you turn the tube, the glass little pieces would fall into place. You watch it through the mirror. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And I don't think you could ever get the same configuration, the same look a second time. No matter how often you looked at it, no matter how often you turn the tube, there's going to be a different look. What you've seen is never going to be the same again. I don't know if you realize it or not, but now we're beginning to get into the last portion of the month of July, July 2016, and it'll soon be gone. And it doesn't seem possible to me that that is happening, but it is. You and I know it is. Uh, 2016 is here, and now it's half gone. And all that we did... And the first half of this year is gone. Uh, No matter how hard we might try again, we're not going to be able to get that time back. It's like that kaleidoscope. 
once you've seen it and you pass it by, you're never going to get it back again. The same configuration will never happen. And so it is with the first half of this year. It is gone. And there's nothing we can do to undo it or to change that. It has happened. Now, I suspect that some of you are like me. We made some resolutions at the first part of the year. And we thought we would, we'd do this or we would do that and that we in this regard. And uh, those New Year's resolutions are always fine to make. And, and we always make them every year. And we think about how we're going to change things for the coming new year. And I suspect that if you're like me, some of those New Year's resolutions have not been fulfilled yet. And here we are, the second half of 2016, and some of those resolutions are still not accomplished. And they may not be accomplished. One thing is for sure, what I tried to do or didn't try to do in the first half of the year is gone, and I'll never be able to get it back. If it is the Lord's will, I'll have the second half of this year. 2016. Now, those of you who know me know that I love to play football, used to, and played football in high school and loved to play baseball, played baseball in high school and junior and junior grades, grade school and junior high. And I can remember one time playing the team in Tallahoma, Tennessee, and we got into that locker room and our coach got in there and He said, now, boys, we can win this in the second half. And this is how we can do it. And I guess that phrase stuck with me. We can win it in the second half. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about winning it in the second half. First half's gone. Can't change it. But if it's the Lord's will, I have another half a year to go before 2016 is done, and I can win this in the second half, I can be the kind of person God wants me to be. I can change my life the way I need to change it, and I can start making the reforms that need to be made in concert concert with the will of God, and I can do it, and I can win this in the second half. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about winning in the second half. And that's what we've read already in Ephesians chapter 4. Our discussion begins in verse 17. And even though this discussion goes all the way into chapter 5, chapter 4, verse 17 really tells me that the work that we have cut out for us is considerable. I wish you would work with me today in studying the Bible. Let's get to work and get our Bibles open and study them and read them and understand them the way we should understand them and then start applying it to our lives every single day that we live. Now, to win this in the second half, one thing's going to have to be sure. I cannot make any concession with the culture. Now, we have a very powerful culture in which we live One thing Paul's making very clear, I can't make any concession with the culture. For me to win this in the second half, I'm going to have to say no to the culture and its pull. Now this I say in testifying the Lord. 
I'm in Ephesians 4 and 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Let's win this in the second half. Stop living the way the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Futility of the mind simply means fruitlessness. Often think of it as a dead-end street. The way they think is a dead-end street. I don't think that way. They are darkened in their understanding, verse 18, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He explains why they think the way they do. They're ignorant, and it's a self-imposed ignorance because of the hardness of their heart. The culture is what he's talking about. He's writing this passage to an ancient congregation of people who faced a great deal with regard to their culture and the values that they faced that day. Now, that's a word you hear a lot about, values. A word you don't hear much about is virtue. Virtue, you see, is more of an objective type of standard. But values, why, you have a set of values that you really think are important. I have a set of values that I think are important. You see, there's a difference between the word virtue and value. You don't hear the word virtue because the word virtue is a word which talks about a standard of authority. This is a virtue. It is always good. This is a virtue. It is absolutely true. But today, you hear more about values. These are my values. And these are our values. And and these are your values as though we come up with our own set of values. And one set of values is as good as another set of values. Your set of values is one thing. My set of values is another thing. That's the cultural look. It wants to emphasize values. And it doesn't really talk about virtue. Virtue is more of an objective standard. This is always right. It is a virtue. I wish the culture would talk more about virtue. Standards, absolute truths that are always right and never wrong. But what they talk about are values. These are our set of values, and this is that set of values. When I say give no concession to the culture, I mean don't yield to it. Make no concession. Do not yield to the way of the culture. Don't give in to their set of values. It is the futility of their thinking, Paul says, verse 17. It is darkened by their own understanding, verse 18, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. The only way to win this in the second half is for us not to give concession to, that is, yield to, or give in to the values of the culture. What the culture tells us is right. What the culture accepts. We want to accept that. If we do, we're going to fail to win this. That is, to live the Christian life and to be pleasing in the sight of God. I read the story of a lady in England one time who kept hearing footsteps behind her. And she'd turn around and nobody was there. And she kept hearing footsteps behind her. And she took her, turned around and nobody was following her. And she really got concerned about this. She thought that she had some kind of mental, emotional condition whereby now she's hearing footsteps behind her all the time. So she goes to the doctor. And the doctor, after a thorough examination, finds out that her hearing aids are in upside down. <laughs> and the footsteps behind her wasn't anybody behind her. She was listening to the beat of her own heart. That's the way the culture is, isn't it? 
culture is listening to the beat of its own heart. It's not listening to God's Word. It's not saying, do what God says. It's saying, do what you think is right. You do what you think you understand to be true. Don't be listening to any set of rules, any set of standards that you might feel like might be right. You just do whatever you think you do. And people who do that long enough, you know what they begin to think? They begin to think that's right. When they start doing what the culture tells them to do, and they start listening to the culture, and they give concession to what the culture tells them to do on how to talk, how to dress, how to live, how to conduct themselves, when they start listening to that, they start yielding to what the culture says do, they start thinking that this is right. They start thinking that this is a good thing. If we're going to win this in the second half of this year, we're going to have to give no concession to the culture. But we've got to find out what the Word of God says and follow it completely. And if the Word of God says it, then we know that it's right. One of the things we need to do if we're going to win this in the second half, we've got to make sure about our commitment to Christ. Now, when I went forward many years ago and I sat down there and the preacher, which I had talked to and studied with beforehand, asked me to stand up. Now, I think I was scared to death at the time. He said, I'm going to ask you a question. And I thought then, oh, man, I hope I get this right. I thought we've studied this all the way through. What question is he going to ask me? And he said, I'm going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And I thought, that's an easy one. Yes. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's an, that's an easy one. That, for me at that time, but as time would go along, as I begin to get older and older, I begin to realize there's a lot of pull and a lot of play which the devil tries to put in my life to try to get me to compromise on my commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying in our passage here in chapter 4 and verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Notice how he says it. They are darkened in their understanding, verse 18, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And here's our verse, but that is not the way you learned Christ. To say learned Christ means obey Christ. It means more than just you studied about Him, but you've learned about Him and you've obeyed Christ. You decided not to obey the culture, but you've decided to obey Christ. You've learned Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when a person goes forward and they say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which I believe is the greatest thing you'll ever be able to say, you're making a commitment to Christ. For me to win this in the second half, I've got to make sure of my commitment to Christ, that I believe who He is and what He is. That's the only begotten Son of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus, who died for me and was raised from the dead by the power of God. And I'm saying, I believe in the death of Christ. I believe in the resurrection of Christ. And that that resurrection 
proves that I'm going to be raised, that I'm going to face God one great day in judgment. Now, I remember years ago when I first went to Disney World, and we went to the Hall of Presidents, and it's an attraction at Disney World down there in Orlando, and uh, it was impressive because in the Hall of Presidents, you have these figures that come up, and they have the figure of George Washington and his head, and you have the figure of Abraham Lincoln. And what these figures were called, I learned later, is amniotrons. He wasn't really Abraham Lincoln. Though I learned when I tried to study some of this, Abraham Lincoln's Amniotron had 22 different facial expressions, 15 different movements, and a three-minute speech, which was very inspiring. And I'd listen to Abraham Lincoln and his Amniotron. It looked like Lincoln was there, but it wasn't really Lincoln. It was some engineering kind of device, a type of hologram where you could sit and listen to these great uh, politicians and leaders of our country, founding fathers of our country, and they gave very patriotic statements with regard to their presidency in the state of our union. And it was very uplifting. Amniotron. Wow, I'm sitting there in the seat and I'm listening to Abraham Lincoln. Well, it really wasn't Lincoln, of course. It was some kind of hologram of Lincoln that engineers put their smart heads together. Man, they put that together. What a wonderful thing that was. That's not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not an amniotron. He's not some kind of hologram that some men thought up in the past and they put some to him and they put some stories to him. Now, modern literary experts want to portray it that way. They want to portray the myth of Christ. They want to say that, well, he was some historical figure, they might say, but all of these things really don't go along with who Jesus was and what Jesus said. He's not some kind of amniotron. He's the real thing who really lived and really did what the Scriptures say, really performed those miracles, really preached those sermons, really taught those parables, really died on that wrong time ago, was raised on the third day by the power of God. This is no myth. This is no amniotron. This is the real Son of God in flesh and blood and bone who lived and died for us and for me to win in the second half. I've got to commit myself to Jesus Christ. I've got to be sure of that commitment. We've sung some beautiful hymns today. Do you notice that? On Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul of man never dies. Walking along at ease, viewing the skies afar. Oh, Christ, how I adore you. We've sung some beautiful hymns today which convey commitment. And when we sing from our hearts, we're praising God and we're committing our souls to God and we're saying, I have commitment in Jesus Christ that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I'm committed to Him. I've been baptized in by the authority of Christ. And I observe whatsoever he has taught, 
Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's what it means to be committed. I can win this in the second half. If I commit myself to Jesus Christ. I can win this in the second half if I commit myself to the church of Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to do something with me. And that is, let's go back to the pages of the Bible and let's rehabilitate this great Bible doctrine, the church that belongs to Christ. Don't hear much about it anymore. Hear a lot about Christ, but I don't hear much. And that's what Paul's talking about in this great passage of Scripture. I'm in back in Ephesians 4, our text, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. How are we members one of another? We're members in the church. The church you read about in the pages of the Bible. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We have a responsibility to Christ and our commitment to Christ. We have a responsibility to one another, a commitment to the church of Christ. For we are members one of another, Ephesians 4 and 25. We become part of this body when we're baptized into Christ and confess our faith and repent of our sins. We become a part of that and we have a responsibility to one another. We have responsibility to fulfill that. Notice how he says it. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. He's talking about our responsibility and our commitments here. We have commitments one with another. Don't give the devil the opportunity to get a foothold in my life. And you help me and I help you in this regard. Verse 28. He's talking about stealing there. Why? Stealing from whom? Each other. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I'm in Ephesians 4 and I'm looking at verse 28. And what's he talking about in this section of the scripture? My responsibility as a member of the church, to the church, to one another. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He's talking about my responsibility here. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Malice is the idea of willfully and intentionally doing something, of thinking in such a way it will hurt you. I have a commitment in this regard. Well, the year starts. And I make a resolution. I'm not going to get bitter. I'm going to get rid of all the bitterness, get rid of all the anger. And I'm not going to be upset. I'm going to go the second mile. I'm going to get rid of all this bitterness, this outrage. And here it is, the year's half over. There's somebody here in the congregation I won't even speak to. The people in the congregation won't have anything to do with each other. 
year's half over. Now, I made the resolution back there at the beginning of the year. I'm going to be more like Christ. I'm going to live a more Christ-like life. I'm going to be more dedicated to the cause of Christ and the church of Christ. And here the year's half over and people won't even talk to you. Won't talk to you, you don't talk to them. The only way we're going to be successful is to be able to win this in the second half. And we can do it. We can turn this matter around and do just exactly what he says in this passage with regard to each other. As he talks about the matter in chapter 5, he expects us to live holy lives. We're going to start doing that. Live holy lives. We can turn this thing around. We can do and be what Christ has told us to do and be by repenting of our sins and by being committed to the church that belongs to Christ. We've been obedient to the will of God and the Word of God. Now, for me to win this in the second half, I'm going to have to be conscious of the consequences. And I don't know that we've really emphasized this as much as we surely should, but there are consequences for disobeying God. And there are consequences for not living the kind of life that we should be living. And I naturally thought of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. As he continues this discussion of living the kind of life that Christ wants us to live, Christian living, you see, comes this verse 5, which we should mark in our Bibles. For you may be sure of this. Now, when he says that, my ears ought to perk up and my wheels ought to be spinning in my mind and my focus ought to be really riveted onto that because he says, you can be sure of this thing, I'm going to tell you here, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see, that's a consequence. If you don't do what God has said, if you're involved in sin which God has condemned, then let it be assured you're going to face the consequences of God and you're not going to like it. This one thing is for sure. Now, it tells us in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Those empty words, you see, are false words, words that are trying to get me off of the subject and try to get me to believe something that really is not true or something the Bible never intended to say. And so the empty words are trying to focus my attention away from what the Word of God really is saying. There are consequences for failure here. I've got to commit myself to Christ. I've got to commit myself to the church of Christ. I've got to commit myself, and I've, I've got to realize I cannot give in to or yield to or make concession to the culture. And there are consequences when I fail here. And the consequences that he's referring or rehearsing for us is found in Ephesians 5 and verse 5. We will not inherit the kingdom of God in Christ, which means we'll lose our souls eternally. We're not going to receive the so work for words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but we're going to be cast into everlasting darkness. Consequences. There are consequences for what we do and consequences for what we do not do. Watch out for the empty words. The empty words that will come along and try to pull you away 
put you in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was reading in Smithsonian Magazine some time ago about some workers who were digging a tunnel in uh, New York City, and uh, I'll try to describe this accurately as I can, as I recall. Uh, they already had two tunnels that had been dug back in the 30s, 30s and 40s, as a means of supplying water for uh, the residents of New York City, but they were digging a third one, and they had to go down into this uh, work, uh, and they dug down into the earth some 500 feet, 500 feet down. And as they're digging down, then they begin to go laterally. And the men who worked in these areas are called sand hogs, and this was their job. But one of the rules they gave the sand hogs, stay away from the tunnel, because if anybody drops anything down that tunnel, 500 feet, it will kill you. If a wrench falls down that 500-foot tunnel and hits you, it will kill you. Anything comes. Stay away from the tunnel. From the bottom part of that tunnel, you stay back from that because if anything does happen to fall down the tunnel, it's going to hurt you and it's going to, chances are, kill you. And that was one of the rules that the sand hogs lived by. Stay away from the tunnel. And isn't that what Paul is saying in this passage? Stay away from the empty talk because if you get hit by that, it's going to kill you. If you can't stay away from the empty talk and the false message and all of that which is trying to pull you away from your commitment to Christ and your commitment to the church and try to pull you in to the culture in which we're living, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you badly. There are consequences that you need to face. You need to be aware of. Stay away from the shaft because the consequences are severe. And he says in this section of Scripture, about verse 8, For at one time you were dark, you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Verse 10, chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that a great statement? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you don't, there are going to be consequences. And then he gives us this statement that has really stuck with me for a long time. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11, but instead expose them. Expose them. The unfruitful works of darkness. Expose. Now, the word expose is an interesting word. And as I begin to delve into this, it goes back to, you know, constantly talk. You're continuing to talk. It's not like never be quiet, but it's, you know, whenever the opportunity arises, you expose the false values that are out there. It's not enough to simply ignore it. It's not enough to simply stay away from it. What he's saying in verse 11, expose them. Expose. Why does God want us to expose the unfruitful works of darkness? To talk about them being false. To say they're empty words and it's not going to help you. It's going to be a dead-end street for you. Because when you expose it, others will be able to see 
how false it is. It's sort of like putting the light on a system or a statement that's an erroneous false statement. Other people will be able to see, this is a false statement. You've exposed it. You have shown that this is a false statement. This is a false position. These values you're trying to are false. This is not what we're about. This is not what we're trying to be. We're trying to be what the Scriptures tell us to be, and we're not going to be what you want us to be for these reasons. Here is why. It's exposing and telling and talking. And you know what's going to happen when you do that. You're going to have to tell them where you're from, where you're coming from. Because when I expose something, Ephesians 5.11, that means I tell them where I'm coming from. And don't be ashamed to do that. Don't be ashamed to tell people where you're coming from. I'm coming from the Scripture right here. This is where I'm coming from. I'm a New Testament Christian. I've been obedient to the gospel of Christ. I'm trying the very best I can to live the faithful Christian life. It's where I'm coming from right here. I'm taking my stand right here. I'm not afraid to tell people where I'm coming from. Don't be that way. Don't be afraid to expose. Because when you expose, you have to let people know where you're coming from and why. Ephesians 5, verse 11. 1967. I remember following this and all the news and the magazine articles and papers that I read at the time, was the Six-Day War. Israel found itself against three nations in 1967, but they jumped ahead of them and was on the attack. And the 1967 war that Israel had with three nations larger than them only lasted six days. They faced tanks, armored carriers, military units, much larger force than what they were. And yet, they got to jump on it. They ran out there and got ahead of the game, and they destroyed by uh, jet fighters the air fields of the enemy, securing the air for themselves, and then bombed and destroyed the tanks and the armored equipment and that kind of thing. One entire Egyptian army was captured in the Sinai by the Israeli army. And one of the news guys interviewed the general of that army. He said, how is it that they came up on you and captured your entire army? And this general said, because we never shot back. And the interviewer wondered, well, why didn't you shoot back? And the general said, because we didn't want them to know where we were. So we didn't shoot back. And they captured us. When you expose error, you got to let people know where you are. You got to shoot back. You just don't take at face value, well, this is what they're doing. Okay, I'll go ahead and do it. You say, no, this is where I am. And you shoot back. You let them know where you are. Because to win this in the second half, we're going to have to face consequences. And if we don't shoot back, if we don't expose error, if we don't show them where we are and what we believe and what we stand for, then we're not going to win this. We're going to lose. Now, as you think back upon your life, and I guess old men do this, they think back on the life where they 
came from and what they did and decisions that they made. I think the better course is to do that. Instead of thinking about your life from the day you were born all the way up to the present, I think it may be better to think back on your life from where you are right now. And you think back, yeah, that's a decision I made, and that caused me to do this. And then that caused me to do that. And when I made that decision, why, that meant I did this over here, and that's why that happened to me. And then when I made that decision, then that caused things to happen, and that's why I got into this, or I was able to do that. You kind of look at where you are now, you go back in your mind and reflect on your life, and you look at the decisions that you made, and what was the result of those decisions. There's a decision to be made here. What decision will you make? Will you win this in the second half? Will you win this in the second part of this year? To be the kind of Christian God wants you to be. Or to become a Christian and to get rid of the sin. And, and to obey the Lord and, and the gospel by repenting and being baptized and being added to the Lord's church and confessing His name. And you think, yeah, that's when I made that decision. That's why I'm a Christian today. Because I made the decision to win it in the second half. Or, you're going to look back on this and you're going to think, man, I made a mistake right there because I decided not to obey the Lord. I decided to follow the culture and to live like everybody else. And look where I am now because of the decision that I made back then. What an important time this is. I hope you make the right decision and avoid the consequences of failing to obey the Lord and win this in the second half of this year. Won't you become a Christian today while together we stand and while we sing?